The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined once again by my dear and former professor from my alma mater, the Geneva School of Diplomacy. He's a former senior lawyer with the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, former UN independent expert on the promotion of a democratic and equitable international order, and much more. His new book is Building a Just World Order from Clarity Press, which I just finished reading and is very good. It's good to see you again, Professor Desaias. How is Geneva. Well, Geneva is cloudy, foggy. Uh, my wife today, she just came back. Uh, she was uh, racketing in the mountains in the snow. She sent me photos to make me envious. Uh, up in the mountains is just gorgeous, just blue sky and sunny. And uh, but here in uh, in Geneva is uh, clammy. It's uh, two degrees and you know, feels like minus two. Uh, in any event, uh, we are preparing for the fourth advent. And as I said, have a a concert tonight. And I have another concert uh, on uh, uh, on Sunday and uh, still two rehearsals uh, before uh, the, the final. As the case may be, yes, I'm glad you mentioned uh, my book because it is gradually getting uh, reviews. And I'm hoping that the 25 principles of international order that I formulate, that they, they will be uh, taken seriously, at least by some politicians and some senators and some uh, uh, parliamentarians, and not only in the United States. I mean, I would very much uh, welcome uh, AMLO, Lopez Obrador. It would be great if uh, uh, Lopez Obrador were to get a copy uh, of the book and uh, some of his uh, assistants would read it and do him a uh, executive summary and how to use it. Because I think the 25 principles of international order uh, could be used by many heads of state. Uh, I, I, in, I, I did uh, have a I did have a question about AMLO uh, as well, and, and um, hopefully we can get to it. And so let, let's get into your book uh, and you know look at some of the troubles uh, of our time. Um, in a recent interview, you said that you think many UN agencies are doing a good job. Uh, and in your book, you say that it is difficult to imagine the world without the UN, that it prevented World War III. And maybe just to start, I, I think listeners will like this. Maybe I'm picking some of the juicier quotes from your, from your book. Uh, you've referred to different threats to democracy and the UN. And you mentioned misplaced priorities of, of governments and international organizations. Uh, and in the, in, in the beginning of your book and in, in a later section, you write, quote, future mandate holders will have to address the impact on a democratic and equitable international order of uh, private associations. And you list a number of them, such as the G30, the Council on Foreign Relations, the World Economic Forum, the Bilderberg Group, Trilateral Commission and others, which are sometimes perceived as promoting world government outside the UN uh, context, end quote. So, you know, maybe just to start, could you expand on, on these groups you mentioned and, and what you think their agenda is, is you say they want to work outside the bounds of the law uh, and the UN. And, you know, many listeners are fascinated. So I, I think this is a good place kind of to whet our appetites before we move on. Well, it's clear to you and it's clear to me and it's clear to many others uh, that the name of the game uh, is to uh, let the rich remain rich and let's keep the poor poor. I mean, 
you want to keep the status quo so that the billionaires can enjoy their billions, notwithstanding the fact that there are also billions of human beings in Africa and in Latin America and in Asia who are starving to death. And uh, you want to maintain this system uh, that allows for hoarding all of the vaccines and forgetting everybody else in the world. Uh, it is a system that is so unequal, so undemocratic. I mean, I am pushing, uh, and that would be would have been a subject for the so-called summit for democracy of Joe Biden. I would like uh, to see uh, a, a world where there is international, not only national, international democracy, meaning participation, that uh, the voices of small countries, poor countries are also heard, that they have some influence in the policies of the uh, World Bank, International Monetary Fund, World Trade Organization, they are left behind, they're forgotten. Nobody cares about them. And uh, democracy, I mean, if Joe Biden is talking about democracy, how about doing away with the Electoral College? How about doing away with gerrymandering in the United States? It's an endemic problem. Uh, how about ensuring that everybody can vote? But that is not what uh, the system wants. Uh, there is an enormous public relations effort to sell the United States model as the model for democracy. Whereas back in 2005, you had the World Summit. Now, it's a truly inclusive World Summit. All 193 states that were there and observer states and uh, the Vatican and so on and so forth. And uh, they produced uh, resolution 60 bar one, uh, the outcome document. And in paragraphs 135 and 136, uh, they actually go into the issue of democracy. And they say very clearly, no country has a patent on democracy. It's not one size fits all. There are many models of democracy and the united nations should help all countries find their own way all countries should have a homegrown democracy and what is democracy democracy is the correlation between the will of the people or rather the will of the majority they can do account also of the rights of the minority but the will of the people and the laws and policies that affect them. That is what democracy is all about. Democracy ruled of, by, and for the people is what we are striving for. On the other hand, the United States understands democracy as uh, periodic elections, point final, that's about it. The only thing that counts is that every two years, you can vote for some figurehead who's going to be your senator or your congress uh, person. Uh, and every four years, you can uh, vote for someone who is actually 
not a leader. Joe Biden is not a leader. Uh, 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 Trump was not a leader. It's someone who is going to be doing the bidding for somebody else who really has the power. I mean, as uh, I said, uh, 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 those who govern are not elected. And those who are elected do not govern. I mean, those who are elected uh, follow uh, the orders uh, of what you call the deep state, follow the orders uh, of the great interests, economic interests, of the military, industrial, financial complex. And uh, both parties in the United States converge, and also in many other countries also. Huh? But uh, if you look at the uh, political landscape in the United States, whether you are Democratic or Republican, both parties are for militarism. Both parties are for exceptionalism. Both parties are for interventionism. Both parties are for Wall Street. Both parties are for Israel and against the Palestinians. Uh, both uh, parties uh, are uh, uh, for the Monroe Doctrine, if you want, uh, and for uh, yeah, Manifest Destiny. And with this uh, self-serving conviction that we are, by definition, the good guys, and I say, wait a minute, you know, how about Matthew 7? Have you ever heard about uh, uh, looking at the speck in the other guy's eye and not realizing that you also have some uh, uh, disabilities in your vision? Shouldn't you be sweeping at your own uh, doorstep? That is simply not part of the narrative. You won't read it in the New York Times, in the Washington Post. You will not hear it in CNN or in Fox. Uh, I mean, we are being indoctrinated into believing that we are the good guys and we can tell everybody else what democracy is all about. I mean, the absurdity of uh, inviting this uh, despotic hothead called Boris Johnson, uh, but not inviting Viktor Orban of uh, Hungary. The idea you have a democracy summit, but uh, you leave billions of people out. You leave 1.4 billion Chinese, and you leave the uh, Russians out, and uh, but you put in the world's largest democracy, India, that is uh, well, committing crimes against humanity in Kashmir that have killed tens of thousands of Kashmiris that have denied the self-determination of Kashmiris, uh, etc. But they are the world's largest democracy and um, they could participate in this exclusive club uh, that uh, Biden um, uh, in his uh, imperial narcissism uh, invited. So uh, you, you see my preoccupation uh, with epistemology. Language is being hijacked. Language is being corrupted. Corrupted uh, by government. Politicians have lied 
since time immemorial. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, I mean, if you go to Pompeii, uh, you will see uh, the um, uh, political statements, even the cartoons uh, <laughs> that they had for the elections in Pompeii back uh, 70 BC, no, no, 70 AD, uh, as the case may be. Um, politicians, you expect them to lie. Uh, but uh, you also hope that in a democracy, you're going to have a free press and that uh, the press is going to be the uh, watchdog that is going to be pointing uh, at the crimes uh, of government, at the abuse of government, at the breach of the rule of law by government. Uh, but how many conglomerates do we have now? I think it's down to six or so. I mean, there are about uh, six conglomerates that control all the media, that control all the information that we get, which means they can disseminate as much fake news as they want. This, this was actually, I wanted to bring this up, but, but yeah. before mentioning that, you had some really great quotes on elections and democracy that I, I wanted to read out. Um, very colorful. Uh, you say, quote, many elections are bogus in the sense fake elections because the population only echoes the propaganda it has been fed and contending parties offer no real choice, leading to a straitjacket of pseudo-democratic ritual elections if the only choices uh, possible are between candidate A and candidate B, whose programs are often very similar. In such cases, the two-party system averts itself to be only twice as democratic as the one-party uh, system, end quote. So uh, I, I love in some Cuba of the stuff. Or in China. Well, it, it is true. I must say, I think uh, that there is probably more plurality of views uh, in China or more plurality of views in Cuba than in the United States. Because in the United States, there is such pressure of political correctness uh, that you think in order to belong, that you have to go along with what you read in the New York Times or in the Washington Post. Whereas in Cuba, everybody knows there's only one party. But then within that party, there are many views. There, shall we say, within the Cuban Communist Party, there are those, those people who are far more to the right or to the left you know, than uh, the, uh, the single party. The name of a game, the test, the litmus test of uh, democracy is whether you actually have participation. Does the government consult the population? Does the government care about what the population thinks? Does the government go out of its way to find out what people feel? Uh, does the government inform the people? Or do we have a system whereby uh, people are getting fed only a certain amount of information and dissenting views uh, are simply suppressed. And that we know in the United States. If you are a dissenter, if you are a journalist who does not agree uh, with the editorial line of CNN or of Fox or the New York Times, you're fired. And that's it. I mean, that is, of course, freedom. The, it's private enterprise, we can fire you. And of course, you get fired. 
Yeah, and uh, so, just just to add again, you, you write a lot a lot about this in your book uh, and um, in your reports. Reports you've talked about that the democratic deficit and the need for democratic controls so that the protective functions of the state are not uh, undermined. You you've said there's little hope for an international democratic order as long as democracy is lacking at the national level. End quote. And you discuss the censorship by governments and the private sector techno giants, as you call them, in our new digital society, which has become uh, Orwe Orwellian. And I often see you tweeting about this angrily. And you, in your book, you mentioned the, the work of Nils Melser and um, the dangers of our move toward totalitarianism. And you're also, you also complain a lot about the EU. So uh, again, we have this like techno Orwellian censorship. Uh, this book came out original German, their father, Julian Assange, coming out in English, translated by Niels Melzer himself, because I asked him, Niels, for Christ's sake, why didn't you write the book in English? I mean, it's, you know, Niels is from Zurich. He's a uh, Swiss German. So his mother tongue is German. So he wrote the book in German, managed to get it published in one of the best publishing houses in Germany, Pieper. So I'm, I'm very happy that it came out in Pieper and not in some alternative um, uh, uh, publishing house. Uh, but in the United States, he only got Verso, Verso um, Press in uh, New York, which is a fairly alternative um, um, uh, publishing house, but at least important that it will be um, in English. But as far as um, uh, Niels Meltzer, is one of the rapporteurs whom I really respect. I mean, I would say 20% of the rapporteurs are independent and good and committed. The others are comfortable individuals, careerists, opportunists, who want to use the post of rapporteur to jump to something bigger and better. And of course, they don't want to burn their fingers. So they uh, only attack those countries that you can attack safely, like Belarus or Russia or China, well, but they wouldn't touch the United States or they wouldn't touch France or Germany, uh, etc. So back to uh, this incredibly important book. I mean, I call, and I, I did two reviews of this book. Uh, I called uh, Niels Meltzer the Emil Zola uh, of the 21st century. Now, to remind uh, listeners, Emil Zola, a uh, prominent French journalist at the end of the 19th century, uh, who uh, in a very famous article called J'accuse, I accuse, uh, as a whistleblower, he blew up uh, the frame up of this young Jewish captain uh, in uh, the French uh, army who had been just simply framed up uh, by uh, the military and he had been convicted of espionage for Germany. Now, in any event, uh, it was shoddy, but when uh, the article came out, it became a scandal and rightly so. And uh, the result was that uh, uh, the conviction was lifted and uh, Alfred uh, Dreyfus uh, was uh, again liberated. So that was uh, 
at a time when the press was, shall we say, somewhat independent. Today, that would not happen. Today, a whistleblower gets put in jail. They frame him up with a completely false uh, accusation of uh, sexual harassment and, and rape and all sorts of things that had to be, of course, discontinued because there's nothing, nothing to it. Uh, but that forced them uh, to flee uh, into the Ecuadorian uh, embassy in London. And then when the government uh, of uh, Rafael Correa in Ecuador uh, ended uh, and the new uh, President uh, Lenin Moreno came in power, Lenin Moreno, in exchange for a nice uh, IMF uh, loan, uh, he stripped uh, Assange of his refugee status. And if there's anybody who has a right to refugee status, anyone who can invoke the uh, Geneva Refugee Convention, it's Julian Assange. He's a person who has a well-founded fear of persecution. He definitely does. He's already been persecuted for more than 10 years. And uh, what uh, Niels Meltzer divulges in his book is so much worse than what Emil Zola did in the Dreyfus affair. There you had a dysfunctional military court system. Uh, it was a wrong uh, judgment against uh, Dreyfus, had to be corrected and was corrected. But what uh, Niels Meltzer, and he's professor of international law, professor of human rights law, head of the uh, human rights department here at the Graduate Institute at the University of Geneva. He knows what he's talking about. What he does systematically, he reveals the breakdown in the rule of law in the United States, United Kingdom, Sweden, and Ecuador. I mean, chapter after chapter, it is tough reading because uh, you can't accept that your government is doing these things. You cannot accept this kind of, shall we say, obscene lawfare using the machinery uh, of the administration of justice to destroy justice, to destroy a human being. Because obviously uh, what should have happened as a result of the WikiLeaks uh, disclosures in any civilized world, uh, what should have happened is that major investigations would have been conducted by the U.S. Army, U.S. Uh, Air Force into the use of drones, into uh, the uh, killings and torture, a whole complex of torture uh, in Afghanistan and in Iraq. There would have been investigations, commissions about torture in Guantanamo, about the uh, illegality of the so-called extraordinary rendition uh, program, which was solidly condemned by the UN rapporteur uh, on uh, human rights while combating 
uh, terrorism. That was Ben Emerson QC. Uh, he uh, did a couple of reports uh, concerning this uh, issue of uh, uh, extraordinary renditions. And uh, you would think uh, that some alarm should have gone somewhere. But uh, one crime leads to the next. Uh, so one cover-up leads to more covers-up, leads to uh, more violations of human rights and of the rule of law in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in Sweden, and in Ecuador. Now, when you realize the implications of the book, it's really frightful. Uh, but because people don't want to accept it, you don't want to accept that your government is acting unconstitutionally, that your government is breaching US law, UK law, Swedish law, and it's all documented. Yeah, and I wanted to get what? kind of your the, the further implications. So, uh, and you mentioned rendition, rendition. So basically Assange, uh, his extradition or rendition to the US has been uh, approved. And meanwhile, he's suffered a, a stroke because I think we can say he's been tortured for the years that he's been held uh, in, in prison. And, and, and this kind of creates a legal precedent now where the US or perhaps any country can extradite extradite or rendition anyone anywhere for merely being uh, a dissenter, as you previously mentioned. And I suppose in theory, I could be renditioned for this podcast. And you've said in a recent interview that it appears that the U.S. establishment wants to uh, punish Assange so severely that no future whistleblower will ever dare to do what Assange did. So well, I mean, they, they have already punished him. I mean, uh, they have ruined his life for the last 11 years. Uh, it's not just now, it's not just the uh, uh, ruling of uh, this sold out uh, British uh, judge. Uh, what I find here is that I'm uh, not sure that they really want to uh, try him in the United States. I don't think anybody wanted to try uh, 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 Jeffrey Epstein. I think they want him dead, period. And they're hoping that he will just die in Belmarsh because of the conditions he's been held there. And um, uh, the doctors who accompanied uh, Niels Meltzer, who went to see uh, Assange, confirmed that his state of health was very delicate and that he certainly would not survive uh, being uh, uh, extradited. And, uh, but the United States gains anyway. He's bottled up in uh, Belmarsh. And uh, the mainstream media, the corporate media, the lying media has maintained the defamation of Assange. I mean, there's a tremendous complicity on the part uh, of the corporate media in creating a monster out of uh, Assange. Uh, you, you have to study what the BBC writes about him, what uh, uh, the New York Times has written about him, uh, how, what words they use, what adjectives they use to uh, subliminally and sometimes very directly uh, suggest to you that this man is a bad person. He's a really morally detriment. And uh, so uh, 
this kind uh, of character assassination has been done quite deliberately uh, by the press in Sweden, in Ecuador, in the United States, and in the United Kingdom. Now, my proposal has been to use anti-monopoly legislation and antitrust uh, legislation to break down these conglomerates uh, because there's so much power being exercised by uh, the media uh, that democracy becomes impossible. Democracy can only function if you have access uh, to all the information that you need in order to formulate your own opinion. Uh, if that access uh, is cut off because only a handful uh, of media moguls uh, control all the information, uh, then of course you're being manipulated. But one concern that I have is by what right do they do that? And why doesn't the state step in and establish rules and regulations? Of course, we all want to have a free media, but we don't have it. I mean, the media has a social responsibility. The social responsibility is to guarantee the truthful information and the comprehensive information of the public so that they can democratically uh, choose uh, their own opinions. I mean, freedom of expression would be meaningless if it only meant that you have the right to echo whatever nonsense you heard last night in CNN. I mean, freedom of expression is precisely freedom to dissent, freedom to have a different opinion. That's the freedom that has to be protected, not the freedom to go along and to join bandwagons. So uh, back to what I was saying, uh, censorship by government is very bad. But government has at least a certain democratic legitimacy, because even if the system is very dysfunctional, uh, Joe Biden has been so quasi democratically elected. So the American government has a certain democratic legitimacy. Whereas who has elected uh, Murdoch or who has elected uh, the other media moguls? And they are exercising power. And I think every exercise of power must be subject to democratic control. There must be some kind of democratic control. Otherwise, you are being led to your own destruction. You're being fed wrong information and you're being deprived of essential information uh, so that uh, you cannot exercise your democratic uh, rights. Neil Smeltzer condemns that. And I hope that when his book comes out, uh, that he will be invited to hard talk in the BBC, that he will be uh, interviewed by uh, numerous prominent um, uh, uh, prominent maybe uh, Amanpour of uh, CNN uh, could interview him and 
uh, also by uh, by by the French and by the uh, the German. I think uh, an interview uh, in uh, the uh, Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung uh, would be uh, necessary. It's probably the leading intellectual uh, newspaper uh, in uh, in Germany. Now, let me take advantage of the opportunity to ask for assistance from uh, your listeners. Uh, my book uh, is doing well. I understand from Clarity Press uh, that it has been selling rather well, but it's not a question of money. I don't care about it. Uh, I'm writing a new book uh, also for Clarity Press. And the title of the new book is The Human Rights Industry. Why the human rights industry? I could have called it the human rights establishment or the human rights system uh, or you know the human rights landscape. Uh, but it's an industry to the extent uh, that uh, the participants, the tools uh, of the uh, human rights uh, system, whether it be the special rapporteurs of the human rights council, whether it be uh, the non-governmental organizations and it's the International Human Rights Watch, the International Service uh, for Human Rights, uh, et cetera, uh, are not acting, can we say, in a manner consistent with the International Bill of Rights. They're not acting in a manner consistent with the uh, Charter uh, of the United Nations. I mean, the Charter of the United Nations has three major, shall we say, driving principles, peace, development, and human rights. Now, when uh, you have uh, non-governmental organizations and rapporteurs uh, who instead uh, of advancing advisory services and technical assistance for states that requested and needed, instead of advancing multilateralism, advancing dialogue, advancing uh, compromise, they're actually engaging in just naming and shaming and uh, pointing fingers and saying, you're bad, you're bad. Instead of uh, saying, look, you know, we understand you have problems and how can we help you? You know, uh, the, the approach uh, that I have seen in the uh, human rights establishment is wrong. Uh, it's a very um, imperial approach. I call it imperial narcissism. And uh, we ought to define ourselves as the good guys, and that gives us the right to condemn the others. So what I'm asking from you and from other listeners is for concrete examples in your experience uh, of uh, double standards of selectivity, of um, how to put it, uh, of betrayal uh, of the uh, principles of the UN Charter and of the Covenant uh, on Civil and Political Rights and the Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights uh, by politicians, by diplomats, by international civil servants, 
I mean, it's particularly grotesque uh, what the Organization of American States uh, has been doing. I mean, the OAS, uh, the way it um, connived and actually supported uh, the coup d'etat against Evo Morales uh, in 2019 in Bolivia, uh, the way they uh, manipulated uh, their so-called election monitoring, something that they do uh, in, uh, in many countries in Latin America. I mean, the uh, Organization of American States has really failed all the tests uh, of uh, democracy and human rights, in particular during these years under uh, Luis Almagro. And um, I am particularly uh, shocked about the way in which uh, they uh, 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 wanted to recognize the uh, credentials of an imposter. I mean, Juan Guaido is an imposter. Juan Guaido of Venezuela uh, has not been elected to any post other than the post that he used to have uh, in the old uh, National Assembly. So for five years, he was uh, a member of the National Assembly uh, of uh, Venezuela. But uh, nothing in the Venezuelan constitution uh, gave him any right or any legitimacy in auto-proclaiming himself uh, interim uh, president. I mean, that was an attempt at a coup d'etat, which probably in some other countries uh, would have meant uh, immediate <laughs> arrest and uh, condemnation for the rest of his days. Uh, on the other hand, he has not been touched. I mean, the government has not thrown him in jail. And um, the Organization of American States wants to give this individual some kind of uh, legitimacy. I mean, what a massive breach of the OAS charter. I, I'm just like the face of articles three and 19 and 20 and 21 uh, of I, the OAS charter. I mean, I, this kind of interference in the uh, internal affairs uh, of a member state is unacceptable. Of course, by now, Venezuela is no longer a member of the OAS. And uh, I would like to see uh, Mexico actually uh, turn its back. Uh, uh, on, uh, on this is my um, next question, uh, since you brought up Latin America and, and Mexico and, and, and AMLO um, and kind of how the OAS, OAS and some of these institutions seem to be failing and AMLO is kind of taking more charge. Um, in recent months, he has praised the UN as the best possible form, I guess, of world government, he, he said like a month ago, and he has suggested creating a North American Union or Latin American Union modeled uh, on the EU. So he wants to kind of create uh, a Latin American structure that I guess uh, he, he says would work for the interests of the peoples here um, that we haven't seen thus far. Uh, and so what are your thoughts on, on what AMLO is well, doing? The, the Grupo de Puebla uh, is pushing for that also. But you may remember that back in 2010, uh, the idea was uh, aired uh, of 
uh, a purely uh, Latin American and Caribbean organization, excluding the hegemon, excluding the United States and Canada, uh, so that uh, Washington would not be calling the shots for Latin America, but it would be the Latin Americans and the Caribbeans who actually determine uh, what uh, policies they want. So they did in 2011 uh, create uh, the uh, uh, Council uh, of uh, Latin American and Caribbean States, the CELAC. And uh, the CELAC just had a, a meeting uh, a week ago and uh, they've adopted some very good resolutions. I mean, they uh, back, that must have been 2014, that the CELAC adopted a resolution uh, declaring all of Latin American and the Caribbean uh, a uh, zone of peace. Already the uh, Treaty of Tlatelolco uh, in Mexico, uh, some 45 years ago, uh, already that treaty had um, declared uh, Latin America a nuclear free zone. But this uh, CELAC resolution went beyond it. The CELAC resolution uh, uh, declared all of the territory of Latin America and um, Caribbean as a zone of peace. It's a good example for the world. I would hope that uh, AMLO picks it up. And I would think that AMLO is in a position uh, to help CELAC uh, replace the OAS. Uh, Honduras, uh, I mean, Nicaragua has now denounced the uh, OAS charter, and rightly so, because the OAS has betrayed its principles so fundamentally uh, that uh, I think the only thing you can do with the OAS is to solve it. Uh, and um, there is a replacement organization, the CELAC. And I think this would be the time, say, for Honduras, that now has a new president, Honduras to leave the OAS and to join, uh, well, it, Honduras is already a member of, of CELAC, but to focus uh, its activity within uh, the CELAC and to strengthen the CELAC and to strengthen South-South uh, 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 cooperation and South-South um, uh, solidarity. Uh, again, I would, you know, I'm an American citizen. There's nothing that I would like more than the United States uh, doing away with the Monroe Doctrine and deciding that uh, we would like, you know, to cooperate with Latin America and not dictate to Latin America. Uh, what they should be doing. We would like to be friends. You remember Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his uh, good neighbor policy. I'm afraid that uh, presidents uh, uh, Ronald Reagan and Bush and Clinton and uh, George W. Bush and Obama and uh, Trump and now Biden uh, have insisted on a uh, hegemonial imperial policy uh, whereby we have uh, not a good neighbor uh, policy, 
uh, bought a policy of, uh, shall we say, uh, the colonial power and the colonies. So uh, as uh, the uh, OAS has already been called uh, the Ministry of the Colonies, and that is the way that uh, American presidents uh, have seen the function of the OAS. So I think that AMLO, uh, who I think still enjoys a high level of popularity uh, in Mexico, uh, has the, um, shall we say, the political weight uh, to carry uh, Latin America. I mean, he should give as much support as he can uh, to governments that are being uh, subjected to illegal sanctions. Uh, certainly the sanctions against uh, Cuba, Nicaragua, and uh, Venezuela are unacceptable. They are contrary to international law. They are contrary to the OAS uh, charter, and they should be condemned. But unfortunately, human rights have been so much uh, weaponized uh, that um, with complicity of the media, uh, that uh, the public, the general public in the United States, more or less, uh, have accepted uh, these sanctions against Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela because those are bad countries. So uh, we want to starve them to death. It's like in the old medieval times that you would siege uh, a town and then you starve them to death until they show their white flags. And um, now, of course, it's not just a town that is being uh, put under siege, it's a whole country. And uh, the cruelty of the sanctions is spectacular. As you know, I was the first UN rapporteur to go to Venezuela in uh, 21 years. I was there in November, December, 2017. And I, uh, you know, I went there with an open mind and I spoke with everybody. You know, I spoke with the National Assembly, with the opposition, with the Chamber of Commerce, Fede Cameras, with the professors, the churches, quite interestingly, <laughs> the uh, Church of Venezuela, or more or less, most of the Church of Venezuela uh, has been in the opposition because it was the, the Church of the Rich. So uh, they associated more uh, with uh, the parties of Julio Borges and of uh, Capriles and Leopoldo Lopez, etc., etc. Uh, whereas the Jesuits supported uh, the uh, social policies uh, of uh, the Chavez and now uh, Maduro uh, governments. So I interviewed all of these people and uh, the main message uh, of, my mess of my report was, look, there is a major economic crisis in Venezuela, but it has two reasons, two uh, uh, sources. The breakdown of the price of oil, because the oil was very, very high. Uh, it was nearly $150 at the time of the barrel uh, in the years 2012, 2013, and then it breaks in 2014 uh, after um, uh, Chavez uh, dies. And then Maduro uh, has to already 
uh, deal uh, with the fact that uh, a country that is almost a, a, a one uh, product economy, uh, 95% of its uh, currency came from sale of uh, oil, uh, found itself with half of that because the, the, the price of oil had uh, been halved. And, uh, and then instead of trying to help the country uh, navigate uh, in this difficult time, then come in uh, uh, comprehensive sanctions, financial blockade, uh, so that Venezuela could no longer buy and sell like anybody else. Uh, and um, uh, investment was impossible because anyone who wanted to invest would have to pay a huge penalty uh, to the US Treasury. Of course, these measures are extraterritorial and are illegal. But um, what do you care that they're illegal if you have the power? Uh, to impose them. And the United States has the power to impose them. So what happens is that most everybody just dropped uh, Venezuela. I mean, it's too risky to do business there. I cannot afford, you know, having to litigate uh, with the United States. So I don't sell anything more. I don't buy or sell anything uh, from uh, Venezuela. So you have here a situation of an economic crisis. Yes. There is hunger, yes, there is uh, scarcity of medicines and uh, any number of other problems. But who caused it? The United States. I mean, ex injuria non auditor use. You cannot create a humanitarian crisis and then blame the Venezuelans for the humanitarian crisis that you yourself artificially created. Mm -hmm. You want to help help the Venezuelan people, it's very simple. Lift the sanctions, lift the financial blockade, let them function like any other state. They have the largest oil reserves in the world. They have probably the second or third largest gold reserves in the world. They have bauxite, they have lithium, they have all sorts of things. It's a super wealthy country in natural resources. And if you allow, um, uh, investment to come in and to, uh, shall we say, reconstruct the uh, infrastructures that have not been able to be main, uh, maintained. Because if you know something goes wrong in a refinery or something goes wrong in the hydroelectric plant, you cannot buy the replacement parts because Venezuela was so dependent. Uh, on trade with the United States that, uh, of course, they didn't have a home industry that would uh, make them self-sufficient, that would allow them to maintain all of these industries. So uh, we, my report simply said uh, the economic crisis is artificial. We have caused it. We have a tremendous responsibility vis-a-vis -vis the Venezuelan people uh, to pay reparation for the damage uh, that we have done to them. And it's not just economic damage. Sanctions kill. And you know from Professor Jeffrey Sachs and uh, Mark Weisbrot in their report 2019 that uh, estimated that uh, for the year 2018 alone, 40,000 Venezuelans had died as a direct result 
uh, of uh, the sanctions. And that was 18. In the meantime, 19, which is been worse, 20, which was worse, 21st, still worse. So I, I think it's easy to estimate that way over 100,000 people uh, have lost their lives as a direct result uh, of sanctions. I, I, I wondered, um, I mean, it, in the interest of time as our hour is winding down, I wanted to kind of end on a more uh, positive or optimistic note. And people can go back. We did a more in-depth interview on uh, on Venezuela, and they can go and read your uh, report. But before kind of asking you about the more optimistic and best case scenario regarding the UN and UN institutions, uh, a number of people, I have one more critical question to ask. A number of people have asked me to ask you. Um, so you just mentioned previously, for example, the bad deal between Lenin Moreno, Ecuador, and, and, and uh, the IMF as one example. Um, and um, you've written also in your book about the negative impact of financial interests on human rights. You talk about the human rights uh, industry. Um, you've stated you recognize human rights pr problems arise from, you know, commercial activity and, and financial interests, but you place trust in the existence of multilateral organizations like the WTO. Uh, but some of us, you know, many of us are also concerned about the financial interests uh, in, in the area of, of health. Uh, you've said you generally think UN agencies like the World Health Organization do good work, um, but you know we're we're hearing some people like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. come out uh, and saying that there are some issues with the WHO and you know big pharma to an extent. You know there's yes. some elements yes. of, of of capture and, and the promotion of their products. And you know what insights or thoughts would you have? Um, you know in, in the time of this public health crisis, uh, conflict, you know problems regarding the WHO and, and criticisms uh, of institu well, institutions. Certainly, such as that. The, the WHO, like many agencies of the United Nations, uh, can benefit uh, from uh, reform that uh, requires uh, reflection, that requires uh, options. We must consider which are the uh, uh, contingency plans that we can have for uh, the uh, improvement uh, of the functioning of the WHO. Uh, there are influences. Uh, certainly, uh, China weighs on uh, WHO, as does the United States, directly and indirectly, because there's the blackmail of the United States, uh, if you don't do what I tell you to do, you don't get any money. You know, that's blackmail, nothing else. It's bullying. Uh, and um, certainly, uh, there are failures in the system. I personally know Tedros. I can send you very nice pictures of me with Tedros. Um, and I've spoken to him, I've discussed matters with him, I've made suggestions to him uh, with regard to a post-COVID uh, social contract, with regard to a post-COVID um, uh, pandemic uh, uh, preparedness treaty, and they're, out, they're moving on that. I mean, the, a new uh, treaty for preparedness uh, is uh, now being drafted. So I think that I've had maybe a little bit of influence, uh, but um, uh, I don't idealize any of these organizations. I think that the uh, United Nations is very imperfect. 
But if we didn't have it, we would have to invent it. The ILO is imperfect, but if we didn't have it, we would have to invent it. And um, I think that all of these organizations uh, advance the idea that we are all in this planet. You know, we're all in the same boat. We have global problems which can only be solved globally, and it's not only the pandemics, it's also uh, climate change, and it's also uh, the danger that uh, an asteroid might again hit planet Earth. And we have to have contingency plans for that. We must be prepared, and that can only be done globally. Unfortunately, 40% of our budget in the United States goes into the military. Now tell me, why in the name of God uh, do we need a trillion dollar uh, military budget to finance uh, more drones and artificial intelligence and uh, lethal autonomous uh, weapon systems, otherwise known as killer robots? and uh, more nuclear submarines, et cetera, et cetera. Should we not be concentrating on preparedness in the field of health, pandemics, vaccines, et cetera? Should we not be uh, prepared for uh, volcanic eruptions? I mean, we're terribly concerned about climate change, me too. But uh, you realize what would happen if the super volcano under Yellowstone Park blows up, or if the super volcano in uh, the Batna Yokut in Iceland blows up, or one of the many uh, big uh, volcanic volcanoes in um, in Indonesia, I mean that will uh, significantly <laughs> uh, pollute uh, the atmosphere. Uh, the billions of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, liters of ash that will be uh, sent up into the atmosphere. These are things that we have to be prepared to do something if that happens. And uh, we're not doing it. Uh, we're uh, just still in this mad consumerism. And we're only thinking about the next iPhone that we can buy or the next gadget or junk uh, that uh, we can buy for Christmas or whatever. So um, uh, I, I think that our priorities are wrong. There are plenty of people saying the right thing in the United States, except that they're not uh, in uh, the powerful positions. One of my heroes, if you want, is Jeffrey Sachs at um, uh, Columbia. Uh, university, he is saying most of the right things, and so is uh, Noam Chomsky, uh, but they are not in a, a position of power in Washington where they could make things happen. But my concern actually is, uh, well, I have many concerns, but my main concern is around the concept of world peace. Uh, the United States. Uh, I thought after Mike Pompeo that Anthony Blinken would be a bit more reasonable. Uh, but he is spreading, you know, 
uh, fake news about China. He is uh, making uncalled for uh, allegations, evidence-free allegations uh, of genocide in Uyghur, uh, in Xinjiang. Now, the fact is in the uh, Uyghur Autonomous uh, Republic in China, uh, there are problems, but there are problems in many parts of the world. But uh, China has invited the High Commissioner of Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, to come and see for herself. Uh, China is, uh, uh, shall we say, interrelating uh, with uh, UN rapporteurs. It's in interrelating with the UN system. Uh, it's not covering things up. And uh, I think it is highly irresponsible for Blinken and for the media uh, to be putting out uh, these ridiculous uh, accusations of uh, genocide, which, by the way, I consider an insult to the real victims of genocide. I consider to call uh, the uh, alleged forced uh, labor, etc., in um, uh, in Xinjiang, uh, uh, to call that genocide, uh, when you realize that genocide really means uh, the extermination of 1.5 million Armenians uh, by the Ottoman Empire and uh, by uh, Kemalist uh, Turkey, means uh, the uh, extermination of 6 million Jews during the Holocaust. Uh, means uh, the uh, extermination of uh, maybe 800,000 uh, uh, Rwandans uh, during the Rwandan genocide, those were genocides. Uh, we have a completely different situation uh, in Xinjiang, uh, uh, and there's a lot of information on Xinjiang uh, on the internet. Huh? You just go on the internet, do Xinjiang, you will find not only these evidence-free accusations, but you will also find a lot of solid information that has been put out by professors, that has been put out by the Chinese government. Of course, the Chinese government is open and publishes statistics and publishes all sorts of uh, documentation. Uh, and then you will realize that this is not anywhere, anywhere uh, close uh, to genocide. And if you think that there's a problem, support the United Nations in conducting an independent uh, investigation. But it has to be independent in good faith, objective. The problem with many United Nations uh, commissions of inquiry is that they are already, the pre-selection who's gonna be there is someone who's already committed against the country. Uh, it's like the, the case with the fact-finding commission on uh, on Venezuela, it's a disgrace. I mean, it's a farce. Yeah, it's a You talk about uh, this in your book, and I have one uh, final question for you, maybe to end on a on a positive note. And you know, one of the purposes uh, of your book, where you build a case for a, a more just uh, world order, you write, "quote 
A democratic and equitable international order is one where the UN Charter is recognized as the world constitution and the ICJ operates as the world constitutional court, uh, end quote, and where peoples and nations enjoy representation in the UN and regional and financial international uh, institutions. Just, you know, going forward in the years ahead, maybe decades ahead, uh, what do you see? Are, are you optimistic in terms of the, of the UN system and the other, the many other, you know, systems, regional, multilateral, NGOs, um, do, do you see kind of a slow general improvement uh, or the uh, maintaining of the status quo? Um, what do you see going ahead? Well, I I think that as a practicing Catholic, as a Christian, I think it's my duty to be optimistic. It's my uh, duty to try to indicate obstacles, identify problems, but also provide uh, implementable, pragmatic uh, solutions and recommendations. And I do observe that there are uh, any number uh, of prominent voices like Jeffrey Sachs, like uh, Neil Smelter, like uh, Alena Dohan, uh, who are saying the right things. Uh, what we need, and that's my hope, that uh, programs like yours, and I give interviews to uh, Yuri Smouter in Belgium and to uh, uh, Rico Brouwer in Amsterdam and to all sorts of um, other uh, interviewers and bloggers, etc. that uh, gradually, thanks to the internet, and uh, we will break the monopoly uh, of the media and we'll get the information out to the people. Because my uh, feeling or my belief, my conviction is uh, that the human being, with all his problem and with all his um, little jealousies and little uh, ambitions, et cetera, et cetera, the human being uh, is basically good and he wants to have a good life for his family, his children, his friends, etc. And uh, that fails very often because he's being manipulated. He's being used uh, by others. So to the extent uh, that we can disseminate information and disseminate an optimistic narrative, uh, I think there is indeed uh, a legitimate expectation uh, that we will come out uh, of the low point that we have reached. Uh, but certainly we won't come out of it through uh, fake uh, exercises uh, like uh, the uh, uh, Summit uh, for Democracy. Let me uh, go back to the uh, outcome document. Uh, of the World Summit held uh, in New York back in 2005 to celebrate 60 years since the entry into force of the UN Charter, 24 October uh, 2005. There, that outcome document, Resolution 60 Bar 1, is a very optimistic document. And it has all sorts of not yet implemented proposals. I think that it would be uh, worth for uh, politicians uh, to take the time uh, 
to read that document again, in particular, paragraph 135, uh, that talks about multilateralism and talks about democracy, international democracy, domestic democracy, and the fact that there's no one single model uh, of democracy. And uh, on this happy note, I think we can say for today, uh, it was a pleasure uh, to chat with you again. Uh, give my best to your wife and kids and to your sister and her kids. I am uh, pleased to have had you both uh, as students. And it is for me always a tremendous pleasure uh, to uh, uh, stay in touch with some of my better students. And uh, you are certainly not the oldest uh, with whom I can keep contact because uh, one of my better students, Roman Bode, when I was professor of international law in Chicago, uh, he uh, did a great paper uh, for me, got an A, I remember. And uh, he's been for many years now uh, with the uh, International Criminal Tribunal uh, for the former Yugoslavia and uh, uh, its now uh, successor organization because they have actually been winding up uh, their work. And uh, Roman Bode is uh, in uh, living in Basinar uh, in The Hague. And that is actually uh, on foot from my house in uh, Nordberg and Zee in Holland. It is uh, about four hours on foot, and I've done it on foot. And it's about uh, half an hour, three quarters of an hour of a bike. I've also done it on bike. So uh, again, enjoy the Christmas season. Try to relax a bit. Try to keep safe. You know, Corona is not gone. And uh, pray to God that it does uh, have a bit of mercy with us and it goes eventually away. But uh, on this happy note, I do say goodbye because, as I said, I have to go now to a rehearsal. And we have a concert at 7 p.m. tonight to be repeated uh, next Sunday, the 19th, the 4th of Advent. Okay, I will. I, I have uh, fond memories of Geneva. This feels like yesterday. Uh, a wonderful time. Uh, and yeah, so again, people can go to desiasalfred.wordpress.com. You're on Twitter, Facebook, and they can go to Clarity Press to buy Building a Just World or uh, Order. Enjoy this. And help, me, and help me with my new book, The Human Rights Industry. Anything that listeners know from personal experience of double standards, hypocrisy, selectivity, let me know about it because I can uh, incorporate it. And I'll give credit uh, and incorporate it into the new manuscript of which I've already written 150 pages, but it'll probably be more in the neighborhood of a 500 page book. All right. Enjoy the ski season uh, in Switzerland. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. 
Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else. Subscribe to all our platforms and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.